What's your problem? What is your solution? This is an interview series about changing the world. There are many things that are critical to our life and to our society that we don't seem to value enough. We need oxygen to breathe. The engines of our cars need oxygen too. But who owns the air or the trees or the creeks? Peter Barnes is an entrepreneur who wants to change capitalism to make it better serve people and planet. Peter Barnes is a businessman who is fixing the flaws of capitalism. Welcome to Camp Solutions. You're a businessman. You started several companies that became successful. You know that capitalism works. You've seen it work. And yet you want to change capitalism. Why? Well, capitalism works uh, in a lot of ways, but does it work the way we need it to work at what I would call a meta level? Does it produce the social and ecological outcomes that we want, that we need in this day and age? Or does it only work in the sense of producing more and more goods and more and more profits and more and more what appears to be wealth but may not actually be wealth? So, the problems of society, you relate to the way capitalism works. If we talk about environmental problems, degradation, global warming, how does that relate to the malfunctioning of capitalism? Um, capitalism, at least as I see it, but many other people also agree, that it has three tragic flaws. Uh, the one that we'll probably focus on today is the, there is nothing in it that limits its destruction of nature. Left to its own devices, which it is pretty much where it's now, it's going to destroy nature as we know it. Flaw number two is ever-increasing inequality, ever-increasing concentration of wealth and power at the top. That is just built into the DNA of capitalism. And the third, relatively minor compared to these other two, but it's, it, it concerns a lot of people, is this um, inevitable tendency to have speculative bubbles that then crash. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an inherent financial and speculative instability that's built into the system. It would be nice to be able to fix that. You've compared in your writings the workings of capitalism with the game of Monopoly. What did you learn from that board game of Monopoly? Well, first of all, Monopoly, the board game, is a perfect exemplar of the second tragic flaw that I was talking about, the, the tendency of capitalism to concentrate wealth at the top. So Monopoly, as you say, we have one winner, everybody else bankrupt. But there are other interesting aspects of Monopoly that caught my attention as well that aren't yeah. so negative. Um, one of them is the fact that everybody starts off with the same amount of capital. This is not the way real-world capitalism works. The, which is another major flaw, if you want to uh, add to the list of flaws, is that the starting conditions are grossly unequal. So you can't expect really good outcomes when the starting conditions of the game are, you know, a few people have half the wealth, as is the case today, and everybody else has very little. That's not going to be a good game. The other interesting thing about Monopoly is that Everybody gets $200 when they pass go, whether they're rich or poor or whatever. It's kind of like a basic income, and you get it because you're a player in the game. There's something about infusing a market system with money, a little bit, not too much, you know, not too little, not too much, but there's a certain amount of money, 
if you infuse it into a market equally to all players in the market, it actually does a lot of good for the market itself as well as for the players who get the money. Every month, I would make it a monthly thing. That's like pass and go. You pass the end of the month, boom, you get another infusion. Would it be $200? Would it be $400? Would it be more? You know, these are details to be worked out. And the other detail to be worked out is where does that money come from? But in terms of implementation, it could be a phone app. Uh, you know, you sign in. If you have a social security number and an address, uh, boom, 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 uh, you're in and you put in your bank account and every month, boom. So it raises your base and it diminishes anxiety. This is the main point. I mean, we can talk about all the economic benefits of doing something like this, how it will actually stimulate the economy, which is an argument that some people like. But aside from that, I think its main virtue is that it diminishes stress. People who are living paycheck to paycheck at the very edge of financial disaster are stressed. We saw this just a few months ago here when we had the government shutdown and 800,000 federal employees, relatively well-paid workers, stopped getting, they lost, they missed two paychecks. And this caused tremendous havoc in their lives. Well, half of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. They have nothing to deal with emergencies. And aside from the financial aspects, the stress and anxiety aspects of living that life are just horrendous. And this is why we have, in my opinion, you know, so many social and political problems because people are stressed to the max, even if they have two or three jobs just to pay the bills. To pay, yeah. That part is... It's still hard. Yeah, but let's yeah. <laughs> let's figure out how do we fund it. How Where's do we that fund money it? Okay, from? well, the first thing, and as I say, in my mind, most important thing, that having a kind of base income of a few hundred dollars a month guaranteed for the rest of your life, no questions asked, is you could relax just a little more. It would calm everybody down, give people a chance to maybe once in a while take a day off, so they could collect themselves or take care of a family member or see a friend. I mean, just to slow down and relax a little bit would be a tremendous contribution to human well-being, let aside all sorts of other benefits which uh, we could get to, including saving the planet. The first thing we have to do is slow capitalism down, not necessarily as a total thing, but in terms of its impacts on nature and start with the atmosphere, it's a good place to start. Um, so we need breaks. Yes. We need some kind of a braking system uh, to slow this, this machine down. And to me, the most simple and effective way to have a break on greenhouse gas emissions is to put a physical limit on the amount of carbon that can enter the economy in the form of burnable fossil fuels. Don't worry so much about who's emitting it. Just stop the stuff from coming into the economy in the first place, because if it doesn't come in, it can't go out. And it's a lot easier to stop it before it comes in than it is after it comes in, and it's going to eventually find its way into the atmosphere. So it would not be a hard thing to do this. This is simple. This is upstream. This involves putting limits on a couple thousand companies, 
oil companies, gas companies, coal companies. You have, just say you can only have so much oil. So much carbon, you know, whether it's gas or oil, they can figure Whatever. out. Yes. Uh, but uh, there's only so much carbon we, the people and government of this country will allow to enter our economy in this year and the year after it'll be a certain percent less and the year after that it will be another percent less and we will eventually you know the, the politics and the is in all of the numbers but eventually we will get to where we want to go but where do we get the money from this is a lot of money the simplest most effective way to do this physical limiting of carbon is through a cap and permit and auction system. During World War II, there were these rationing coupons that every household had. You know, you could only uh, get two gallons of gas a month or whatever yeah. it was, and you had to produce the coupons and that was it. This is how we dealt with the fact that there was only a limited amount of gas that we were going to allow Americans to burn because we were in a national emergency. The way the rationing would work is, okay, upstream somebody says, this year we're going to allow X million pounds of carbon, okay? And the way we're going to allot those X million pounds is we're going to issue X million permits. Yes. And uh, we're going to auction them, just like you were buying a treasury bill or an oil lease or something. Yeah. We'll, we'll sell these permits to the highest bidder. And in fact, as we get fewer and fewer permits, uh, people are going to bid more for uh, the number of permits that are actually available. So the amount of revenue will actually go up for a while as the number of permits issued goes down. A regular permit auction for fossil fuels while we're still burning them would raise enough to pay dividends. This is the point that I want to make because it's where we're getting at. Uh, and it, 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 it traces back to a deeper issue, which has to do with the commons. The atmosphere, well, you know, it's a physical thing. It's the air we breathe. We know that. We know we can't pollute it. But in an economic sense, it's kind of a mysterious thing. Nobody owns it. We know that there is people that owns land and people actually own water rights. We know that. Uh, but nobody really owns any air. I mean, polluters use it for free, but in fact, the reason they can use it for free and without limit is because nobody owns it. Nobody, no individual should be allowed to own it. No corporation should be allowed to own it. It is a gift to all of us from creation. It belongs to all of us equally. If a polluter wants to buy a permit to pollute, he is buying it from us. And the us, all of us, all of us, right? You know, you know, in practical terms, you'd probably do it country by country. If that were the way we arranged our economy, at least in this particular respect, you would have the phenomenon where we would, the faster we reduced climate change, the more our incomes would rise, at least for the next 20 years or so until we got to a fairly low level of carbon use. And it's interesting because there we're solving the problem of global warming by also solving the problem of inequality in society. We're giving people yes. a basic income. I think a good example today is Amazon could not have worked without electricity, without roads, without the internet, obviously. A lot of that came through tax money, 
that was paid by our ancestors. Yes. So in a, in a way, we have an argument to say, hey, listen, Mr. Jeff Bezos, you're using my road. Can, exactly. can you please pay me? Exactly. There's a whole lot of stuff that Jeff Bezos had nothing whatsoever to do with that contributes to the billions that he's worth today. And this is true, really, for every business person, myself included. We all benefit, get a tremendous head start because of stuff that, that we use but don't pay for. That's the point. So, this being the case, one can make a very good argument that the people who are making billions today ought to pay something for use of all the co-inherited wealth that they have taken advantage of but they haven't paid a dime for. And if we put prices on that co-inherited wealth and because we each co-inherit it equally, pay ourselves equal shares of what the billionaires are paying to make their tremendous fortunes off of that co-inherited wealth, we'll have a lot of money and we'll all be better off. You're, in a way, you're a bit of a strange man. I mean, you're, <laughs> uh, you're a businessman. Yes. You talk about capitalism, but many people could argue that you're a socialist. But I probably, when I say that, you'll right. say, no, I'm not a socialist. Right. But where, where does this, this drive come from? What, what is that? I would say I'm a practical man. Yeah. In other words, I can see where markets work pretty well. I've been in them, and, uh, you know, but I can also see where they have egregious flaws that need to be fixed, and then I can figure out, well, how might we fix them? We need something to counterbalance these profit-maximizing automatons. Yeah. And what I'm saying is, well, we could create some other fictional entities, because after all, corporations are fictional entities. They don't exist in nature. No. We thought them up and put them here on this planet and let them run loose, and we see the consequences of that today. We could create some other fictional entities yes. that are the counterbalances to corporations. And these other fictional entities would represent pieces of the commons. And when corporations say, oh, we're going to dump our crap in this particular piece of the commons, you've got somebody there, a new entity that didn't previously exist that says, oh, wait a minute, no, you can't. We're only allowing X much and you have to pay for it. The internal algorithms of these new life forms would be, for example, preserve the asset. Yeah. That's the number one thing. Second algorithm would be to share the income equally. So you have those two algorithms built in to these new entities that now have management responsibility for pieces of the commons. And the more of those things you have, the more you're going to be able to constrain corporations, protect the commons, protect nature, and lift everybody's income. Many of the things you talk about can be achieved through taxation. Right. But there is a big difference in your thinking between right. taxation and universal basic income right. funding. So explain the difference. Okay. Tax laws, at least in this country, are extremely fickle and highly politicized. So to build an economy on the assumption that the government would always be doing the right tax policy is not going to work. So I'm saying to myself, well, what's an alternative that would be, in a way, stabler than, than taxes, and that's where this notion of creating sort of um, 
common property that has similar features to private property, except its purpose is to preserve the property and share its income, not just to maximize profits for a few. But it's property. And the thing about property is that property doesn't go away when the government changes. Property endures essentially forever. Yeah. And it's the jo government's job, in fact, to protect it. So if we could get out of this ball game of taxing and spending and into a different ball game of property that is common property that pays income to everybody, protects the commons, increases people's incomes and sense of security and belonging in society, and then you have government taxing and doing its thing, that's all fine. But they, the thing is that once the common property regime is established, it will endure. How would that ultimately impact environmental policies? How would it impact global warming or, or even the reversal of global warming, right. which we try to achieve? It would um, create institutions like sky trusts or ecosystem trusts that would be the trustees of these various ecosystems, if you will. They're pieces of the commons uh, that have no guardians, no trustees at the moment. That, if we could set it up like that, starting in, say, one major country like the United States and, and replicate it to some extent, and, and Canada has started moving in this direction. We could drive all these other steps, you know, the technologies and the so forth and so on, uh, because they would have no choice. They would have to come up with ways to reduce energy, or fossil fuel use, rather, yeah. uh, and they would. I, I have no doubt well, that, that they that, would. That system works. Yeah, yeah. right, yeah. 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 What is your problem? My problem, well, it's not just my problem. The problem is capitalism. And we're not going to fix global warming and a lot of other things until we fix capitalism. That's the problem. And what's the solution? Well, I don't have a one-word answer to that. I can't say it's socialism, I can't say it's anything else with an ism at the end. But what I've been trying to elucidate is a system that kind of looks like capitalism but feels a little like socialism maybe. Collective ownership of the commons within the context of a, of a market system is essentially what I see as the answer. So we've been talking about changing structures, changing the rules of the game, changing the monopoly game. What do you say about the players? I mean, we seem to be you know, always drifting towards greed. Well, I mean, not always, but, but there are some inherent problems in who we are. Uh, I don't buy that argument. I mean, I do buy that greed is, is uh, an inherent part of humans, but to allow greed to destroy the planet is not something that uh, is inherent in us, I don't think. I think we have other things that could be, were they encouraged, cooperation, preservation, you know, various other forms of behavior that we're equally capable of doing. If we had a system that was designed to encourage those things, so greed didn't run rampant, then I think we could so make it. Better rules? System design, right. Yeah, system design. System okay. design. This different rules of the game lead to a different outcome, and the players will play by those rules. Exactly. Different rules of the game 
different property rights regimes and different the way the players are designed. I say the corporation is designed to do one thing and we need other players that are designed to do other things and that have kind of co-equal power or balance and then we'll be okay if the earth isn't wiped out before we get there. <laughs> so some people say when you give people, as you advocate, a, yeah. a free basic income, yeah. uh, the next thing they do is they go and buy drugs. I mean, I, I make it a right, very black right, and white right. argument. But so, so giving money for free to people seems very counterintuitive to a lot of people. It does, but that's not what happens. I mean, Alaskans didn't run out and buy drugs with their dividends. There's no evidence whatsoever that this is what happens. Uh, there have been other, countless other experiments. They, they use it for things, you know, do they buy a bottle of beer every once in a while with it? Sure. But, you know, what they're doing is relaxing, you know, and that's okay. Some people argue, well, you know, we have sustainability programs. Uh, businesses are very much aware of their environmental responsibilities nowadays. So why do we need to change rules? The reason I got into business, this was in the 70s, I didn't know much about business, but I thought, okay, I'm going to start something and see what's going on here. Yeah. Together with six or seven other friends, I co-founded a solar energy company. This was in the 1970s uh, that designed and installed solar heating systems in the San Francisco Bay Area. And we set it up as a worker-owned cooperative. Uh, one member, one vote, you know, we had equal pay the whole nine yards uh, based on what a lot of people were thinking in those days, kind yeah. of idealistic uh, yeah, yeah. alternatives. Yeah. And for about seven years, it really worked. Yeah. Uh, we had a, a, a viable, profitable business. It was a fun place to work. Uh, we installed lots of solar water heating systems, which was the form of the technology in those days. Um, and then Reagan came in and changed the tax credits for solar, eliminated them, and that was the end of not just our company, but a whole kind of nascent solar industry at the time. And yeah. for 30 years, nothing happened, and now we're starting to say, oh, maybe we should have some solar. <laughs> yeah. Corporations are not really designed to be socially responsible. They can pretend. They can greenwash. They can do less, a little less harm than they're doing. But all of this stuff is on the margins. Uh, the main thing corporations do is grow and make profit, maximize profit and externalize costs. That's their business model. I know, but you didn't do that. We did, <laughs> no. but not to the extreme. Well, but, but you uh, were managing but that. What I'm saying is I would not rely um, the uh, disinterested judgment of CEOs, however sustainable they may paint themselves, because the nature of the beast is the way it is, and there's only a small margin of wiggle room in there. It has a lot to do with the nature of publicly traded stock corporations. They are subject, they are uh, dominated by the algorithm of Wall Street, which is to maximize the short-term return to shareholders. They cannot escape that. So something needs to do that job. Some deus ex machina has to appear to do the job that the system itself, as it is currently constructed, is not doing, will not do, 
cannot do in its current configuration. So what could that something be and how could we stick it into the system before the system destroys the whole planet? That's basically where we're at. And I'm not sure what I'm proposing could fix things fast enough. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I think we're up against the wall right now and we don't have a lot of breathing room. What you speak about and in, in, in the interested parties, I mean, they are the far majority. I mean, in terms of the people involved, it's small percentages of, of humanity. So the vast majority of the people would benefit from what you propose. But the vast majority do not rule under our current way of doing things. Even in so-called democratic countries, the vast majority doesn't seem to rule. So this is the problem. So if Peter Burns would be president of the United States for just a day and he could implement one or two things just by executive order, because yeah. that's what they do these days, yeah, executive right. degree. It's a national emergency, right. You would be your national emergency, what would you do? Well, the first thing I would put in place is an upstream limit on fossil fuels entering the economy and this auction system that we talked about with the dividends paid out to everybody. That could be done in a day. Yes. I would uh, then talk to the administrator of Social Security and say to that person, I want you to come up with a plan for expanding Social Security so it goes and covers people who are younger than 65, all the way down to birth, so that everybody gets a certain amount of money every month. Not necessarily as much as seniors do because they need more because they're not able to work. So this whole notion that everybody is going to have to work, work, work in order to uh, support themselves, and if they don't, it's their fault and screw them, that whole way of thinking is just obsolete. We, we really have to understand that yes, people should work. I'm all for work and work should be rewarded and entrepreneurship should be rewarded. But at the same time, everybody needs a base. In a market society where money is everything, you cannot survive without money. Money should be spread around so that everybody gets some just for being alive. Generically speaking, the commons is huge. Uh, it is responsible for most of the wealth that we enjoy today, and yet it is unprotected and generally uncharged for. And we need to do both things. We need to protect the commons a lot better than it is now protected. And as a kind of consequence of needing to protect it more, we ought to get more money out of it, which would diminish the use of it, but also increase the money we get out of it. And then we ought to share that money equally. And that, with a lot of details to be filled out, obviously, is kind of the essential alternative to capitalism that I think we need. And it's a right. It's not just a handout, especially if we see this money as emerging from wealth that we all co-inherit. It should be shared. Thank you. You're welcome. Here in Point Reyes, where Sir Francis Drake landed in 1579, nature hasn't changed much in centuries. That's the value of the commons. That's the mission of Peter Barnes. This was Camp Solution. See you next time.